How can a just God justify the justification of sinners? That's not just a a cute tongue twister. That question is really at the heart of the gospel. But many people in our culture have never wrestled with it. Some reject the idea that, that God exists and think it's foolish to live concerned about being justified at all. Others assume that if God exists, he'll forgive anyone who asks or anyone who attempts to live a decent life. Christians, though, we can often miss the weight of this question as well. And one of the reasons is is because we forget what a divine miracle justification is. to, To think through that with me, just consider how in the Old Testament, God's character often seemed to make justification impossible one verse that highlights this is Proverbs 17, 15. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them are alike, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And so God says, the person who justifies or lets a guilty criminal go free, God says, That is an abomination to me. I hate that. And yet, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, which we'll look at next week, we're going to borrow a verse there and bring it into this week. In Romans 4, verse 5, God shockingly calls himself the God who justifies the ungodly. How can God do that and be just? How can God justify the ungodly when he hates it, when humans justify the wicked? That brings us back to our original question. How can a just God justify the justification of sinners? Or how can a righteous God declare righteous those who are obviously unrighteous? To see perhaps the clearest answer of that in the whole Bible, we're going to look at our text and break it into three main points. These come from the outline of commentator John Stott, and it's the source of our justification, the grounds of our justification, and the means of of our justification. So if you're taking notes, that's the source of, grounds of, and means of our justification. For our first main point, remember that that Paul, he devoted the whole first section of Romans to masterfully proving that all humanity is sinful and guilty before God. And his summary of that section is Romans 3, 19 through 20. Look at those two verses again. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Verse 20, we come to one of the key words in the book of Romans, and that is justification. This is a legal term used in the courts, and it's a ruling of a judge. The opposite of justification is condemnation. It's to be declared guilty and worthy of punishment. To help us appreciate just how significant justification is, I want to point out how it's different than two other important theological words. The first is that justification is not the same as forgiveness. The two are related, but justification is actually even more glorious. Forgiveness is essentially a negative commitment. It's when someone says, I'm not going to punish you or make you pay for what you have done. Now, justification, on the other hand, is primarily a positive commitment. It's to declare someone acceptable. 
is to say there is actually no grounds at all to punish this person. Marcus Lone, he put it this way when discussing this in connection with our relationship as Christians with God. He says, forgiveness says you may go. You have been let off of the penalty which your sin deserves, but justification says you may come. You may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Tim Keller, he was fond of explaining it this way. He said that forgiveness, it's like when a condemned criminal on death row is released. Now, if you're that prisoner, that's certainly something to celebrate. That's something to get excited about. But again, justification is far more than that. Justification would be like that prisoner released from death row who's awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, even though he's never fought in the military. Now, that award, there is inherent honor and respect that come with it. It, it opens up so many opportunities relationally, you know, so many connections for other, other blessings and, and advancement in life. And this, this is the idea that it's that justification and forgiveness, they're related, but justification is actually even more significant. Now, the second word is that justification is distinct from sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ, which all genuine Christians experience. Sanctification, though, it's a lifelong process. But justification, it happens at a specific moment in time when God declares a sinner to be justified before him. So when we think of sanctification, we should think of a process. But when we think of justification, we, think we should think of a pronouncement. We should think of an instantaneous verdict that's rendered by God. And it's critical that we understand justification, that's the foundation of our relationship with God, not sanctification. See, most of us, we, we know this conceptually. Most Christians understand this kind of hypothetically, but not experientially. See, when we feel like we're doing well spiritually, we feel like we're obeying well, we think, I, I feel justified before God. I feel, I feel justified in my relationship with him. And when we struggle, when we slip into sin, when we fail, we tend to, to doubt our justification. We, we tend to feel less justified before God. And that reveals an error in our understanding of the gospel. You see, justification is not dependent at all on our level of sanctification. It's not dependent at all on the degree of, of how we have been, how much we are sanctified. And so while the two are related, it's not a two-way street. It's a one-way street between these important doctrines. Justification before God, that fuels our sanctification. That's what fuels the Christian life. But sanctification never contributes anything at all to our justification. It doesn't contribute anything to our standing before God. And so since justification is the only basis for our salvation, we want to understand it really deeply. We want to prioritize it appropriately, which is one of the reasons why every week directly or indirectly we mention it. We refer to it. It's that important. And this passage is going to give us a deep dive into justification. Now, before we look at the verses, there's one other thing I want to mention. And that is that some of you here, you might not be religious. You might be in that camp of not believing in God or not sure you believe in God. And so you might wonder to yourself, why is this topic relevant to me? Why, why should I think about that when I stand before God someday, being justified 
before him. And what I would say to you is that even if you reject the idea of God, you can't get away from the idea of trying to justify your life. You can't do it. I heard a, a powerful example of that this week. There was a man in Britain, he was an atheist, and he would walk to work each day, and there was a billboard that he walked past, and someone had put a Bible verse on it from Romans 14 that says, all of us will have to give an account of ourselves to God. And this man, he wrote an article, and he talked about, I don't believe in God. But he said, the older I get, he said, it, it is inescapable that all of us begin to try and justify our existence. All of us have to, to justify, why, why does my life matter? And why is it significant that I'm here? You can't escape that. He said, and he had friends who would tell him, no, don't worry about that. Just, just, just do whatever you want to do. Live however you want to live. And he said, nope. <laughs> he said, that's what sociopaths do. <laughs> like sociopaths, they don't, get, they don't care at all about what other people think. Human beings, because we're relational, we, we want our life to matter. We want to be affirmed by those that we respect. And so apart from God, what people tend to do is they, they try, and, try and live in such a way that they think other people should live. This is the way that I think is the right way to live. This is the way that other people should live. And he said the problem with it, though, is that when we look inside, none of us live the way we think others should live. None of us are as good as we know that we should be. And he said, I, it's not because I do all these terrible things. It's because I know I could be so much better than I am. I know I could, I could be so much more loving and thoughtful and kind than I am. And when I heard that, I thought, oh my goodness, what a perfect summary of Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we've been looking at. This is a man who doesn't believe in God, and yet he recognizes we're all trying to justify ourselves. And if you try and justify yourself apart from God, you will never have stability in your entire life. See, all of us are so insecure. All of us have this deep insecurity because we realize we're not what we should be. All of us sense that. We have a conscience. <laughs> All of us sense that we're not what we should be. And so if you try and build your life on anything else besides the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you'll be unstable. You'll be just like that man who tried to justify, tried to justify himself and saw how impossible it is. Now with that clarification made, let's look at our first main point. What's the source of our justification Listening again to verses 21 through 23. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let me point out a couple of things from these verses. First, righteousness and justification in this passage come from the same root word. And so they are so closely tied together. To be justified before God, as we look at the rest of Scripture, to do that on our own, you would have to be perfectly righteous. Now, righteousness, in many ways, the way you could think about that is righteousness is like a spiritual resume. See, if you want, if you want to go to a certain college in high school, you focus on trying to get good grades. You focus on having good extracurricular, extracurricular activities to try and round it out. And then you submit that to a university because you hope that they'll accept you. You hope that that will make you qualified to be, to be admitted. Now, all other religions in the world, that's what righteousness is. It's the things you have to do, the record that you have to put 
together, to be accepted before God, to, to justify yourself before him. See, the problem with that is as verse 23 famously says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To sin means to miss the mark. And this verse, it shows that sin is ultimately against God. When we sin, we fall short of his glory. Sin is ultimately a wrong against God before it is ever a wrong against another person. All of us, as I mentioned, we know we're not what we should be, and our consciences regularly convict us of how selfish and proud we can be when we interact with other people. But we often fail to realize how shockingly rebellious and ungrateful our hearts and our actions are toward God himself. Because God is holy, he can never minimize or ignore sin the way that we tend to do. Instead, he says in Nahum that he can never leave the guilty unpunished. That's what God says. I can never leave the guilty unpunished. And that's part of God's glory. See, it is a good thing that God is not ever deceived by sin the way that we are. He's never desensitized to sin the way that we can be worn down by sin. See, we couldn't worship a God that didn't take sin seriously. We couldn't worship a God that, that wasn't willing to punish all the evil and the horrible things that happen in this world. But the problem, as we've seen from what Paul has laid out in Romans 1 through 3, the problem is that we're all part of the problem. All of us are sinners, not just in our actions, but at the core of our being, apart from Christ. We are sinners. And we have, we have all contributed to the problems in this world and stand guilty before him. There's no hope of us justifying ourselves before God based on the law and our rep- record of keeping it. And so Paul, what he's done in chapters one through three is he's laid out this dark reality, the real truth about human beings. But the reason he did that is so that the hope of these verses can just explode off the pages like, like brilliant light. And listen to the very start of what he says. He says, but now. But now, this is a dramatic shift. He's been talking about sin and idolatry and the impossibility of us justifying ourselves before God. He said, every mouth is going to be shut before God. But now, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been revealed. We could never make ourselves righteous, but God has made a way for us. One foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament law and prophets. And in God's plan of salvation, according to verse 24, we're justified freely by God himself. Yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but now the way has been revealed that we can be justified by his grace freely. That word freely is important. It means that justification, it's based on grace. It's not something that God ever owes us in fact, we deserve God's wrath. And so God, he, he's never obligated or compelled by some force outside of himself to justify us. God would be completely just to send all of us to hell. He would be completely justified to do that. And yet, we have a God who chooses to justify freely by his grace. The point here is that justification is God's business, not ours. We can never justify ourselves or anyone else. He is the source of the miracle of justification. And so to to summarize our first point, what's the source 
of justification? God is the source. God is the source. He is the initiator of our justification by his grace. That still begs the question from earlier, how can God show us grace and kindness without being unjust, without violating his holy character? That brings us to our second main point, the grounds of justification. Listen again to verses 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So what is our justification based on if it isn't our own performance? Well, according to this clear passage, the only grounds for our justification is Christ's blood. The only grounds of our justification before God is Christ and the blood that he shed on the cross. There are a few key words in this section that highlight that the miracle of justification could only be accomplished through Jesus' work. The first is redemption. This word, it means deliverance purchased for another. This was used in the Old Testament for buying the freedom of slaves. It's also used to describe how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Last week, we saw how Romans 3, 9 said that all humanity is under sin. The idea is that people are under the power of sin, the rule of sin, based on our our sinful nature. But now in verse 24, we see the solution. We can never save ourselves, but God, he has to buy us back, not with money, but with the blood of his own perfect son. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as what? A ransom for many. That word ransom, it's from the same root word here as the word redemption. This idea of, of buying us back. Now, the reason Jesus had to redeem us with his blood is even more clear when we consider the next word from verse 25, mercy seat. Now, in, in most of your translations, it probably has the word propitiation or atonement. Either way, the primary reference of this word is to the full satisfaction of God's wrath by Jesus' death on the cross. Propitiation is a big theological word. You don't have to remember the word, but you have to learn the reality. See, propitiation is the idea of full satisfaction to anger based on a sacrifice. Based on a sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament... What, what the Jews would do is they would have the, the chief priest, the high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And when he did that, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne. And that was the place of atonement. That was the place where a temporary propitiation for sins could be made for the people of God. In Romans Jumping ahead here, it's already made it clear that God, he is enraged by sin. He's rightly angered and offended by our sin, and so he can never let it go unpunished. This is why God's wrath in the Bible, it's often compared with fire. The day of the Lord, the day of judgment, it's often compared with a blazing fire, this eternal fire. It's because God really hates sin. He's really offended by sin. And yet, instead of pouring that wrath out on us, 
instead of punishing us, as he'd be completely justified to do, instead of coming to smash us, Jesus came to save us. He came first to live the perfect life that none of us could live. Jesus had a perfect resume before God the Father, a perfect record of righteousness, a perfect performance. But Jesus, he didn't come just to live a righteous life. He also came to die for the unrighteous. You see, Jesus, he, he knew completely the awful cost that it would, he would have to pay going to the cross. He, he understood that. None of us can fully fathom it. He understood it. And he, we often think of the physical pain that Jesus went through on the cross, but far, far more than that, Jesus understood that what would be way, way worse is the spiritual pain, the wrath of God, God's hatred for sin being poured out on him in our place. He knew what was coming. And yet Jesus, he voluntarily allowed the Father to freely and fully pour out all of the Godhead's wrath for sin, all of that spiritual fire that we deserve, that was aimed at us. Jesus allowed it to be poured out on him in our place. And because he did that, now God can fully and freely justify us in Christ. Now we can be justified by grace. To help help you understand just how important and life-changing the doctrine of justification by faith is, I have a question for you, another question. And that question is, if you're a Christian, how does God feel about you when you sin? How does God feel about you when you sin? You know, is he enraged again? Is his anger towards sin, is it rekindled? Is God disgusted at you? Is he repulsed by your sin, which he hates? Is God disappointed in you, thinking, oh, they're, con- they're just continuing to screw up. He's continuing, she's continuing to screw up even after becoming a Christian. Is that God's heart towards his people? No, <laughs> that's not God's heart at all. You see, God, he could never be surprised by our sin. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows every sin that, that you have committed, every sin that you're ever going to commit, and God knew that fully when Jesus went to the cross. Every sin you've ever committed has been after the cross. And if you're a Christian, all of your sin, not just in the past, but into the future, all of it has been fully extinguished on Christ. All of it has been fully dealt with by Christ. And one of the, the ways that has been most helpful for me to, to picture this and to understand this is to think about a fire. I've shared this before, but if you have ever you know, camped before, made a campfire, and you go to sleep at night, you know, the fire, if you don't put it out, it tends to die down on its own. And often when you wake up in the morning, it just looks like gray embers. It looks like there's no fire there at all. I have a picture here for you. But if you've camped before and you had a big fire the night, the night before, what happens if you just poke those gray ashes a few times and blow on them? All of a sudden, next picture, all of a sudden, you see some of the, the heat. You see, see some of the, the burning wood that's underneath. And if you put some more logs on it, some more sticks on it, pretty soon you can have another blazing fire. I think this is how most Christians think God feels towards them. Most Christians, in, the, in their head, they understand, okay, Jesus paid for my sin. I know legally, okay, that he's paid for that. Okay, I have a legal loophole into heaven. 
But when I sin, God is enraged at me. The fire is rekindled. God wants to punish me. See, when we, when we sin, we think that, that God's wrath is going to be re, redirected towards us. And so when we're doing well, his wrath dies down. And then when we sin, boom, it's back. And is that true? No. That's why propitiation is so important. Not just God's legal demands, but God's emotional hatred for sin. The just hatred for sin is satisfied by Christ. When you sin later today, when you sin tomorrow, does God hate that sin? Yes. God still hates that sin, but it's already been paid for. It's already been dealt with. And so it doesn't affect his heart towards you at all. It doesn't affect his heart towards you, his desire to bless you. That doesn't mean God's disinterested and doesn't care when we sin. It says that, that our sin grieves God in Ephesians. But you don't grieve for people that you hate. To God, all of his hatred for our sin, it has been propitiated by Christ, satisfied by Christ's death. And so what that means then is that when you sin as a Christian, God still wants to bless you. God, his love for you isn't diminished even slightly. You haven't lost God's favor when you fail. And it, seem, it seems so counterintuitive, but the reality is when we sin in Christ, God's heart for us is still our eternal good. Not second best, not, not all, I'm uh, not sure, do I still want their good? No, it's God's very best is still directed towards us. The, the big idea for this word then for propitiation is that we can only be saved by the sacrifice God made, not any sacrifice that we could ever make ourselves. There's one more key word in these verses that explains why the cross of Christ is the grounds for our justification. And that word is demonstration. Verses 25 through 26, God presented him, Christ, as the mercy seat or the propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he'd be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now these verses, it, it shows that the cross was not just a sacrifice, but it was also a public demonstration of God's righteousness. Well, how so? Well, in the past, God did not punish the sins of his people as they deserved, but instead, he passed over them. Again, the, the mercy seat, the sprinkling of the blood. And so, in other words, he deferred payment on them until the cross. Just as we are saved by looking back to the cross, Old Testament saints, they were saved not by the law and not even by the Old Testament sacrifices. They were saved by what Christ did on the cross. Those sacrifices they did, those were a means of expressing faith, a means of trusting that God would save them. But their sins, as well as ours, could only be atoned, through, atoned for and paid for by Christ. Now that arrangement, if you think about it though, it left God open to the accusation that he was not righteous. It left God open to the, the accusation that he did not take sin as seriously as he claimed to or as he should. And just think about David and Bathsheba that Shrine talked about a couple of weeks ago, the heinous sins of adultery and, and this indirect murder. And David 
he repented of his sin. He repented before God and the prophet Nathan when he did that. The prophet Nathan said that, that God has passed over your sin. <laughs> and he said, you're not going to die. Now, it's easy for us on this side of the, the cross. You know, it's easy. We think, okay, that, that punishment, it's not that God didn't care about that sin. It's not that he just waved his hands. The, the punishment that David should get, it fell on to Christ. It fell on to Christ. But in the Old Testament, there was a question mark. How does, God, how does God justify the wicked? How does he justify the ungodly? And at the cross, God, he displayed it. He revealed it. He showed not only his perfect love, but also his perfect righteousness without compromising either of them. In fact, both of them were displayed in the highest measure simultaneously. The cross shows how much God hates sin. It shows how much, how much we deserve God's wrath. It shows that God will never take sin lightly. And at the same time, it shows how much he loves us. And so it shows how much he wants to give grace and mercy. While we rightly gravitate towards celebrating how God revealed his glorious love for us on the cross, at the same time, we need to understand the cross, it also vindicated God's righteousness. He will never gloss over sin. He'll never show favoritism. No one is right with God by how they've lived. But all people, every single person, Jew, Gentile, every person can be made righteous and justified before God by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood is the only grounds on which sinners can be justified. But how is someone actually justified then? And that brings us to our final main point and this is really one of the main emphasis of the whole passage. It's the means of our justification. What is the means of our justification? Verse 26 says, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God be just and justify the ungodly? Well, it's because he impartially offers justification to any who have faith in Christ. Christ has paid for our sins. Christ has, has met the demands for justice. And for those who trust in Christ, not only has our sin been paid for, but Romans 5 says is that God actually gives us the gift of righteousness. We are given the resume that Jesus had. We're given his righteous record, but that's only given to those who have faith. Paul already mentioned that in verses 22 through 23, and he couldn't be more explicit in verses 28 and 30. In verse 28, he says, For we conclude that a person is justified, how? By faith. We conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In verse 30, he says, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the idea here is Jews, Gentiles, every person in the world, how can they be justified? It's only by faith, not works. Faith is the one and only means of receiving justification. Now, for those of you who've grown up going to church, you're not surprised. Of course, you've heard that a million times. But let me, let me clarify what Paul means by faith and what he doesn't in this passage. And to do that, I want to make an intentionally provocative statement, okay? So here's the statement. Faith cannot save you. Faith cannot save you. That probably sounds heretical based on <laughs> what we just looked at in this passage, but all of us know that 
intuitively. And the reason is because faith is only as good as the object you're trusting in. Faith is only as good as the object you're trusting in. For example, I've, I've always wanted to go skydiving. There's a part of me that would love to skydive. And then there's another part of me that thinks if I was actually up on a plane, I would quickly change my mind. I'd be like, no, 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 get me off of here. I don't want to do that. And I'd hold on and probably cry. And so if, if I was ever in that position with you, and let's say that you are a very experienced skydiver. You've done it hundreds and hundreds of times. We're both up there. We're both looking at this jump, and I'm holding on for dear life. I'm crying, and I have to be kicked out of the the plane. I have 0% confidence that I'm going to survive. If I'm pushed out of that plane, and I pull the cord on a good parachute, am I going to die? I don't think so. Hopefully not. (laughs) Parachute opens up, you float down to the ground. Even though I'm very uncertain, I'll be okay. Because if the parachute is reliable... But let's say you've done it hundreds of times. You're not worried at all. You jump out without a second thought, and you don't realize someone's taken the parachute out of your backpack. You have 100% confidence you're going to be fine, but what's going to happen? You're going to be in big trouble. (laughs) I don't think you're going to make it. And the, the point is, faith is only as good as the object that you're trusting in. And this distinction, it matters, because many in our culture, they like the idea of being spiritual or a person of faith. There's a lot of people who like that idea, but they want to define what that means for themselves. That They want to define who God is and, and make a religion to suit themselves. And the problem with that is twofold. First, if God is powerful enough and wise enough to create this entire universe, like we looked at in Romans chapter 1, if there's a God who put all of this in order, nothing you think about him will change him in the slightest. Nothing you think about God will ever change him. And so our responsibility as creatures is not to figure out what you want to believe about God. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to find out what he is actually like. The second problem with this loose thinking about faith is that the Bible is very clear. No one is saved by believing that God exists. Remember in James, he says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. And so this passage, it's very specific. We're not saved by faith. We're not saved even by faith in God. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. That's the only grounds for sanctification. Our faith needs to be in Christ's cross, in his blood, in his grace and his work for us, which means then that believing in God generally won't save. Islam can't save. Mormonism can't save. Catholicism can't save. Not even evangelicalism can save in and of itself. You're not saved by going by what church you go to. You're not saved by your attempts to obey, obey God and live a good life. No, Christ in his blood, that is the grounds of our justification. So in other words, his work on the cross, that has to be the object that we're trusting in. That has to be, that has to be what we look to to justify us. Now, if this isn't clear in your mind, then, you're going to, then you will fall into the trap of turning faith into another work. You'll start to think that, that to be saved, you have to muster up a certain amount of faith. That you, have to, that you have to rid yourself of all doubts and maintain a constant state of, of confidence and commitment to Christ. Ironically, this mindset, it actually competes with genuine faith in Christ because instead of focusing on Christ, you focus on yourself. 
The way this plays out practically is that if you're doing this and you, you see doubts in your life, instead of realizing that's a normal part of following Christ, that you work, work through by, by trusting his word, by trusting and relying on his power, instead, if you see doubts, they can become overwhelming and paralyzing to you because they threaten your entire identity. If you go through seasons where God feels distant or you're struggling spiritually, you can make the mistake of putting confidence in your faith instead of Christ. And if you do that, genuine believers, they can agonize over whether or not they're actually justified before God at all. And I know this because this happened to me for a whole season of my life. There's a season where I wrestled with, am I saved or not? And I made the mistake of equating faith with feelings. And so when I felt close to God, I'm like, I'm for sure good. Like, we're definitely good. And then I sin. I'm having a tough day. God feels distant. And it's like, I must be out. Am I out? What? And it's just this up and down. It's a dead end. It's a dead, it's a dead end trap with no way out when you think that way about faith. But thankfully, Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And you know the biggest mountain that, we need, that all of us need moved in our life? It's the mountain of sin and the mountain of guilt before God. And it's moved not because of how much faith we have, but what our faith is in. Faith isn't a work that we achieve, but it's the means by which we simply receive God's grace. It's not focused on what we do. It's focused on what Christ has done. It, it comes not with good works in our hands to try and justify ourselves before God, it comes focused on Christ's hands that were nailed to the cross so that he could freely give us justification. I love the way the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, the man who has faith is the man who's no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at where he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone. Corey Ten Boone, she says the same thing. She says, if you, look at, if you look to the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Friends, we need more than forgiveness of some of our sins to have peace with God. We need free and full justification. And while we could never in a million years ever justify ourselves, the divine miracle is that God can justify his justification of sinners by Christ's work for us. God is both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. And if you've never realized your need for God to save you and justify you, then I would urge you today, don't ignore what God is saying to you. You'll never be saved by a generic faith. Your only hope is to be saved by your faith in Christ. His work on your behalf. Now, for those of you who already have been justified by faith, my last application, my quick thought for you is don't, don't miss the power of this truth because of your familiarity to it. See, justification by faith alone, it's not only the foundation of our standing before God, it's meant, as I said earlier, to be the fuel of our sanctification. And I think one of the biggest reasons that we often are so weak spiritually and ungrateful and controlled by the opinions of others is because we lose sight of this truth and its implications in our life. If you don't have a, a regular habit of meditating on this doctrine, thanking God for this, this truth, then I'd encourage you for the rest of the year, take the rest of the year 
and read through this short section each day. Just read through it and spend a few minutes meditating on the justification that we have in Christ. Think about the way that that should change why we obey God, how that should change how we respond when we sin and, and fail, how that should change the way that we, that we react to other people, to criticism, to failures in our life. I'd encourage you to, to spend some time meditating on this because it's the foundation that God wants us to intentionally build our lives and our relationship with him on. Now, if you'd like to understand how Paul thought this applied, some of the, the specific implications that came to mind for him first, then you should come back next week because we're going to look at verses 27 through 31, which we didn't have time to get into today. And look at how Paul thinks that the, the do doctrine of justification should radically change our lives. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And God, this is not new for many of the people here, but I pray that it would never get old. And I pray you'd help us understand that we need to go deeper into these truths and learn to apply them in our day-to-day -day lives and in our decisions and in our, in our interactions with others. Lord, I pray that we would have greater clarity of the standing that we have before you and the incredible heart that you have for us because of Christ, the standing that we have. So, Lord, we thank you for this. And as always, we just trust you. Please apply this to each person here. Help each person, Lord, to walk away with the truth that you want them to hear. And help us, Lord, to apply, apply it to our lives. In your name, amen. Well, this time we're going to continue our worship with the offering.